Welcome to NextWorks Innovation Talks. Let our podcast inspire you with inside stories and conversations about innovation. Welcome to the NextWorks Innovation Talks. I'm your host, Laurence van Eelheim, and today I'll be talking to Carlota Perez. Carlota is a professor of technology and development at the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose at University College London. She's the author of Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital, and currently working on a sequel to that book with funding from Anthemis, which is a venture capital firm specialized in fintech. This time around, the book will be focusing on the role of the state. So welcome, Carlota. I'm very excited to have you on the show. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Maybe as an introduction for the listeners who know you less, can you tell us a bit about your bestseller, Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital? So about um, all the technological revolutions and how each separate cycle is structured. Well, yes, we have had five technological revolutions since the industrial, the so-called industrial revolution in England. The first one was basically machinery for textiles and canals. That was a big transformation because it also had to do with organizing work the way Adam Smith explained, you know, division of work for great efficiency. So it was a big change from the previous way that production was organized. Then we had the second, which was a very important one, the appearance of the steam engine for railways. Railways created nations because you could communicate rapidly and therefore it was extremely important and that came together with the fact that the steam engine could also move machines. So it was actually a big revolution in terms of both the technologies for production and the technologies for transport and of course for communication. Then we have the third which is the great heavy engineering revolution based on cheap steel. It was basically moving from iron to steel, which allowed not only to have much further distances to be covered by trains, the transcontinental trains, but also the transoceanic cables. Can you imagine? It was actually telegraph cables going across from Europe to the US and, from, and on the other side from the US to Asia. I mean, really the whole world covered and of course the steamships which went north and south in two weeks so it was the first globalization the first time that we had an actual global markets the fourth is the one we know better at least those of us who are not in our 20s anymore <laughs> it's the i am not <laughs> <laughs> so it is the world of the automobile the world of mass production Again, we had the infrastructure, which was basically now not fixed like the railways, but all over the territory with roads, highways, and of course, airplanes, all moved by the internal combustion engine and electricity for everything. We had electrified homes and electricity for almost every activity. So every possible service was turned into a product, a machine that would do it. And finally, we come to our fifth revolution, mm -hmm. the information revolution, which began with the microprocessor, which is the one that is marking our lives now. Mm -hmm. And that includes, of course, the computers, the microprocessors, the mobile phones, the, all the telecommunications, and basically the fact that now data 
is almost like a raw material with which you can produce all sorts of services. Mm -hmm. So those are the five revolutions. But the important thing is the way that they have evolved. In fact, I identified a pattern for all revolutions. They start with a period in which you have finance taking all the decisions about what's being produced because it's basically people who are experimenting with new things, so they're not rich yet. They're going to become rich as they move on with the technologies, but they begin maybe like the dot-com people began in their garage. So they needed finance from venture capitalists and from banks, depending on what you were doing. So that first period of every revolution is actually setting up the new things, but also, unfortunately, destroying the old. So Schumpeter called it creative destruction, because all the new things generally destroy some of the old. They replace it or they force modernization of the old. And that period ends in a financial bubble, which crashes. That's the usual thing, to have a bubble crash at the end of this period, which I have called installation, which is the time when the infrastructure is installed on the territory and what I've called the paradigm is installed in people's minds. You have like a logic for innovation, which is new, which is different from the previous one. Today, we can think of networks as the most logical way of organizing, the most efficient way of organizing anything is to set up a network. Well, when I was young in the 1950s, the most efficient way to organize anything was a pyramid where you have a boss and then several layers of people, and then you come all the way down and at the bottom of the pyramid is where you do the work. But this idea that you could do it in a network was not logical at the time. Mm -hmm. So a paradigm is the common sense of a period, and that is the best way to use a technological revolution. Mm -hmm. So this period of installation ends in a bubble and a crash, and after that comes a period that I have called the turning point. It's not a point. It can last a long time, like in the 1930s or now. Mm-hmm. It's after the crashes, this time we had two, and we have just had one with the pandemic. It was a, also a financial crash. Mm-hmm. So those financial crashes lead to a period of recession when all sorts of things are visible. You see all the poverty that has been created. You see it in two ways. You actually see it, but you also notice mm-hmm. that people are resentful, that people are angry, that they feel that their lives are less good than they used to be, and that their children's lives especially are going to be less promising and less comfortable than their own. And that makes people very angry. So it's a perfect sort of soup for populism. It's the fertilizer for populism that people feel that they have lost something. That's why populists always talk about better times that used to be what used to be better. So to say, make America great again, is a typical populist phrase, because Mm -hmm. this is the idea. That's how you get people who are resentful about having lost what they had, to feel that they're going to recover what they had. They're offered heaven by the populists. Mm -hmm. You have divisions in political parties, generally people who are looking forward, thinking of new things, and people who are looking backward. So even within parties, they divide, but especially new movements grow with new goals, with new ideas, like we now have the Green Movement, but many other movements that are fighting for different things. Mm -hmm. And it is a time of 
low employment or of precarious employment. And then at some point, all these problems and the populism itself creates conditions for transforming the economy in such a way that you get a win-win game. Mm -hmm. Those are the golden ages. That is the Victorian boom. That is the Belle Epoque. That is the post-war boom. And it could be what we have ahead, which would be, I think, a sustainable global golden information age. Mm -hmm. And that is a possibility. And that is what I've called the deployment period or golden age. So we are now, in my view, in the turning point, and we could have ahead a golden age following the pattern of every technological revolution. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm also going to address the elephant in the room, <laughs> which is the COVID-19. So it feels now that the COVID-19 might have sped up the turning point where we are in now. What do you think about that? Definitely. That's exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. I think that this whole situation could be similar to the world war mm-hmm. with lots of destruction with a lot of problems to solve, also having seen throughout the 1930s all the problems that were created by unemployment, by the depression, by the lack of proper social safety net, and of course by the fact that it was possible both for Hitler and for Stalin to look like the saviors. Mm -hmm. So now we are having a very destructive period brought by something completely unexpected, Mm -hmm. which is a pandemic. But the thing is that the financial crash was not unexpected. That was going to happen anyway. Mm -hmm. The financial crash was due soon because the stock market was in a completely absurd situation. You don't grow 200% while the economy grows 10%, 12% in the same period. It was crazy. Now, this time, In a way, because it is so horrible, because it is a financial crisis, it is an economic crisis, it is an employment crisis, and it is also the revelation of the precarious situation of so many millions of people that are in the gig economy, in the zero hours contracts economy, in the self-employed economy, because so many people have been forced into Mm self-employment because the end of mass production of that revolution was also the end of Jobs for Life. Jobs for Life was something that was ingrained in that mass production, mass consumption model, which incorporated all the workers in the advanced world into a consumption economy. Mm -hmm. So the changes that have occurred Mm -hmm. since we have been in the installation and turning point of the information revolution have meant changing the conditions of work. And it's not that we have to go back. We're not going back to jobs for life. Mm, That doesn't correspond to this paradigm. I mean, Uber is a form of organization in this paradigm. And we're going to have Ubers and we're going to have all these things. So the safety net has to be designed for people who work in Uber. Maybe we have to form some forms of cooperatives where Uber contributes and where people have different proportions of this cooperative where your income can be evened out. We have to invent. We have a lot of imagination has to be displayed in order to find the solutions for how do we provide a safety net for a society where the technologies themselves lead to 
unstable, changing, mobile sorts of employment. Mm -hmm. So we have not invented them yet, and we must, because without a proper safety net, society is not going to be successful. And the win-win game that's necessary for a proper, healthy economic growth will not be there. Mm -hmm. The whole idea, for instance, of universal basic income, which I think is absolutely necessary. It's the only real solution. Mm -hmm. Every single citizen, whatever their age, whatever their condition, should be able to receive very directly in a bank account that they can take out through an ATM, completely without bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. You get a certain amount of money, which is enough for you to eat, enough for you to have transport, and some form of very simple shelter. Mm -hmm. And that, for everybody, and anybody who earns enough, gives it back immediately in taxes. All you have to do, say it's like a thousand euros. Mm -hmm. So as soon as you earn say 2,500 euros, you start giving back the 1,000 euros. So that way you create a safe society. We cannot have a society where we have so many people sleeping in the streets. Of course, we have to solve the home problem also because that's another thing that has changed. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole habit of owning a house, mm -hmm. which is an illusion because most people didn't own a house. What they had was a mortgage that they continued paying constantly. Mm -hmm. So they were really renting from the bank. So in fact, it was not yours until maybe when you were 60 or 70. Mm -hmm. The same thing with the car and the same thing with the refrigerator. Everybody was buying on credit. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you were buying on credit meant that you were really renting not buying. Mm -hmm. But the illusion of buying made it that people then fixed their house and bought things. And, you know, it was a mass consumption thing that was based on the fact that you had a car at the door and a home full of electrical appliances. It was a good life for most people in the advanced world. And that has been lost because of creative destruction, because this is a different paradigm. But we can't say, well, I want to go back to that. Mm -hmm. There is no going back. We've got to go forward, but we've got to go forward in a way that makes for a good life with this paradigm. And that means that we move from products to services. That means we need to change radically the way we conceive of consumption. So you talked a bit about the conditions that we need for the next golden age. So after the war, you talk about supposed home ownership became the basis of progress. What's should these conditions be like today? You talked about rental, but I know that you're also a big believer in smart green growth. Can you talk a bit about that? Okay. I want to begin by something that you just mentioned, mm -hmm. which is the home ownership, because mm -hmm. home ownership became not just a fashion. Mm -hmm. It was actually something that was supported by government. Mm -hmm. Today, the most important thing that people need to own it's an education, it's skills, mm -hmm. because that is the most valuable thing, not a house. Mm -hmm. It's what you know, because salaries and value and value creation depend on how much you know and what you know, and whether it's really capable of doing the things that we need done. So this idea that a university education makes people have a huge debt for the rest of their lives almost is completely crazy. It's completely wrong. Mm -hmm. People used to have these very protected debts. Even your mortgage payments were tax-free in most countries. 
because the whole idea was to make it easy for people to own houses. Mm-hmm. Education is expensive and many people want an education. So the whole thing is extremely expensive. But the way it's organized in some countries is better than in other countries. So we have to see how to make this debt payable. And we need everybody to be able to have that capital, human capital. That is what's really valuable in this new paradigm. Mm Apart from that, we actually need two things. This has to be the two directions because what happens for every golden age is that government actually provides a whole set of policies that are systemic and that go in clear directions. I was just talking about the home ownership direction, suburbanization. You know that in mass production, the fact that the automobile liberated the territory, you know, trains used to have stations and then between stations there was nothing. You could only have development around stations. Otherwise, you had to go with your horses or with your bicycle to wherever you were. The automobile makes all the territory useful. All you have to have is a road and uh, sewer and water and telephone and so on, and that's it. So the cheap land around cities became a place where you could build cheap houses. And of course, governments provided all the infrastructure. So lots of developers could build cheap houses on cheap land. And then people, once they had the cheap house on cheap land, they would buy a car, they would buy all the things that go inside. And then, you know, after the refrigerator, you buy the frozen food. So there was demand for everything. Mm-hmm. And that was one. The other direction was, at least in the countries that could, the Cold War. Basically, the Cold War became the incentive for major innovation. That is where we get the internet from. That's where we get computers from. That's where we get the satellites and all the things that are associated with that and new materials. Mm -hmm. So you had innovations for the home and construction and innovations for the war. Mm-hmm. So those two directions were very effective for having the boom of the post-war. Mm-hmm. War has been throughout history one of the main forces that pulled innovation. Mm-hmm. So it's very unfortunate, but that's how it has been. Yes. Today, what are the directions that we would need? Yes. The first one is to understand that we are very lucky that when we have this terrible environmental problem, this enormous challenge that is climate change Mm -hmm. and the limits to resources, which are, of course, in part, (laughs) a direct result of the mass production revolution and the previous ones. Mm -hmm. So we are actually paying today for the good things that we managed to have before. Mm -hmm. But we should not look at it like we now have to make sacrifices and we have to stop growing and we have to limit all the, you know, everything because we're guilty because we took everything. No, Mm -hmm. that's not the way. It's exactly the opposite. This is the most incredible opportunity for changing the direction of growth towards saving the planet and saving people and having more employment and having a better life for everybody. Mm -hmm. So we have to turn the environmental problems into opportunities for innovation and opportunities for the good life. Mm -hmm. So growth, but smart green growth. We need growth of smart things using the information revolution to save the planet, but also to have a good green life, Mm -hmm. a good smart green life, which means 
that we have all sorts of pleasures and all sorts of things associated with services. They're going to be intangible. So we use less and less materials. Also, there would be innovation in materials, biomaterials, materials that are biodegradable, using more precise materials. You know, I think it's important to stop thinking of only energy, energy, energy. Mm -hmm. We have the materials problem also, and every single material, almost without exception, is energy intensive. Every plastic not only is made of oil, but it's made with enormous amount of energy in refineries and then in petrochemical plants. We have to think of materials as as important as energy when we think of reducing. Mm -hmm. And we need to start moving in directions that will allow our way of life to be better and better, not worse, not with guilt or, or with sacrifices. You talked about the fact that the problems that we need to solve now come from the last paradigm. So that made me think that are the problems that we created, that were created by the former technological revolutions, are they always the opportunity for triggering the next one? Like that the environment is now in trouble because of mass production, mass consumption, plastics, cheap fuel, cheap home ownership, too much houses being built. So that the order is always technological revolution creates a new solution. That solution becomes a problem. There's a new solution that's again a problem. Or is that too simple? No, no, no. In a way, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Because don't forget that we're in capitalism and therefore we're talking about profits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The reason why the information revolution was necessary and was possible and grew and all this is because the mass production revolution was reaching limits. It was reaching two sorts of limits. One had to do with the fact that no matter how much you reduced the amount of blue-collar work you needed to produce things, you were constantly increasing the amount of white-collar work in bigger and bigger companies because the greater the scale of what you were producing, the more you need all the administration and all the marketing. So you needed a lot of white-collar work, and that could not be made into assembly line. Mm -hmm. So it became so costly to have all these white-collar people, and you were reducing the blue-collar. Mm -hmm. So at some point, it was necessary to introduce productivity, Mm -hmm. measures and machines for white-collar work. And that's how computers became so necessary. One of the things that the computer solved was to increase the productivity of white-collar and the more expensive sort of labor. Mm -hmm. So that was one limit that this. But the other limit was a very important one. You know, if you think, for instance, of the electrical appliances series of products, You begin with very important things like the refrigerator, the vacuum cleaner, the iron. I mean, really things that were electric at the beginning and super important. And in the end, by the 1960s, the only things you were adding apart from the microwave, which was quite an innovation, was like the electric carving knife or the electric <laughs> can opener. I mean, pretty ridiculous things. <laughs> you know, you were electrifying things that didn't need electrifying at all, but it was just to get one more product out. We have no more products. Mm -hmm. We have no more markets. Markets are saturated. And the third is no more increases in productivity. Every production plant 
is constantly trying to increase its productivity. One of the problems, of course, is the white-collar workers' productivity could not be increased, and there were limits to how much you could reduce the amount of blue-collar workers. Mm -hmm. But there were other things that were not just that. They had to do with the actual equipment. Equipment that in the processing industries, which are big, like chemicals and all these things, you can make it bigger and bigger, but up to a point, and after a while, you can no longer. You have to have another plant. And the same thing happens with electricity and so on. What was happening is innovation and increasing productivity was also limited. So what happens with this revolution? It solves a whole set of problems. It increases the productivity of the white-collar workers. Mm -hmm. It creates enormous amounts of new products, beginning with the computer. If you just think of the computer and the mobile phone, if you think of that big brick that was the first mobile phone and how far it has gone from being a phone to being a computer, and all these things, these are all new products. At the time when this revolution began, there were no more new products. How many more things could you put in the kitchen? How many more things could you put in the home? So, you know, it's almost like you get to the point where profits are very difficult because there are many limits to the possibility of making profits. So all those things are part of this information revolution, which does bring solutions to the problems that the previous revolution created. And of course, every other revolution in the past has responded because people who invent things, they don't invent things in the air. Mm -hmm. You invent things for a problem that you see. Mm -hmm. So since every revolution reaches maturity and reaches the point where it can no longer solve the problems it's creating, because mm -hmm. it does create problems as you go along, mm -hmm. then new innovations come in to solve those problems. And then they come together, they articulate into a revolution, and then they go on for 50, 60, 70 years. If we decide to do what we need to do using these technologies to change our lives toward smart green lives, we could have a wonderful planet. What has to happen now mm -hmm. is transforming government mm -hmm. to be able to do what has to be done to make life better and mm -hmm. to create dynamic demand in order to make sure that this revolution goes right through every single sector of the economy. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have had changes, even Airbnb and Uber are mm -hmm. examples of the way that this new set of technologies can transform industry after industry. It began by transforming printing completely very early on. And it's been going on and changing one industry after another, but it still has a lot to go. There are many, many innovations still to be made to transform that, but we need the whole system to start moving together mm -hmm. to create those synergies. And that requires a lot of policy changes. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that, about the role of the government for the next golden age, because you have some really interesting ideas about, for instance, taxing for the long term. Can you talk about that? Yes, of course. If the government does not create the proper context, a context that will favor this particular revolution and not the previous, we will never get to anything similar to a golden age. And that context is made up of many things. It includes taxes, regulation, generally a way of changing the relative cost structure for all the players in the market. 
because, you know, people trust a lot in the market and it is a very interesting, a fantastic innovation, the market, which is at the core of capitalism. But markets are a place where people take decisions and where people compete with a way of understanding the context they're operating in, which is common to them. They both believe, for instance, right now, everybody understands that we are in the IT world. So if you're going to innovate, you're not going to innovate without using information technologies. It makes sense to work with that and so on with everything. But of course, there's also another thing. One is which technologies you will use. And the other is what are the relative costs of the various things that you would use. Mm-hmm. And that is very often defined by the state, and the state can give direction. We talked about the possibility of smart green growth. Well, to get that, you've got to change the relative cost structure for smart green growth. Mm-hmm. So what you do is that you make it more profitable to be green than not to be green. So obviously, there must be some form of tax on energy transport and materials, which are the three things that are environmentally damaging. Mm -hmm. And maybe we should favor labor. We should favor more employment because this is a paradigm that leads to changing products into services. So you need more employment. So it would be good to have more employment in all these intangible things that information technology allows. So in order to change the cost structure, let's think. We just said transport, materials, and energy. Supposing that we were to flip VAT, which in fact is a tax on labor and profits, Mm -hmm. because it's everything you add to everything you buy. So in fact, it does not tax energy or transport, except at the very, very beginning. But if we could flip the whole thing so that every single producer, everything they sell, they know, that if it could have less transport, less energy, and less materials, it would pay less taxes, and therefore it would be more competitive. So you change the context, and you change the direction of innovation, and you change the sorts of things that are offered to the public. Talking about finance, I mean, the most important thing is to change the context in which finance is operating. Right now, it's a casino. They are actually betting constantly on financial things. They're not really investing very much in the real economy. In fact, the sad thing is that many of the loans that big companies take are not really to invest in the skills of their workers or in innovation. They are basically to do stock buybacks in order to increase the value of their stock, increase what their shareholders receive, rather than actually changing the company to be more powerful in the future. So This is all part of what finance has allowed in this casino world that they have created. So we need to change the taxation system so that it makes finance think in the long term. Mm -hmm. What they normally do is that they are completely on the short term, so much so that they even have the high-frequency trading, which is the possibility of using a computer to earn some money by getting in between somebody who's buying or somebody who's selling something because you have the information before them. So they do it in microseconds Mm -hmm. and they earn money that way. And of course, anything they can do within a day. So supposing we could 
tax anything you do within one day, which includes that plus anything super short term, which is just speculation, you pay 95% on the capital gains you make on that. And if you're surprised about any, you know, how could you charge 95%? Well, let me tell you that in the post-war period, when Eisenhower, who was a Republican, was in power in the US, the top rate of income tax was 92%. So we're talking about something that happened in one of the biggest booms in history, the golden age, the post-war golden age. It was possible for people to accept that the top rate of income tax was 95%. Well, I think we need to do something like that in order to move finance to invest in the longer term. So we start like that, then say something within a year, maybe we charge 80%, and then you go on and on and on, down, until you get to anything after 10 years capital gains, you pay 0.5% just to have the information so that nobody dodges the taxes. So you claim that we always need governments to prepare the context for a golden age. Do you think that there will ever come a time when governments will no longer have that power now that we have tremendously powerful companies like Google or Amazon, for instance? Do you think that that power may be shifting? Well, there's always a balance between the power of the most powerful companies and government. This is a long-term history thing. In fact, if you think of it in the US with the antitrust law, what the whole thing did was to fight against these very powerful monopolies. Mm -hmm. We had something like US Steel, which was practically a monopoly in the US, producing steel, which was the most important thing. There was also a monopoly in oil. In fact, Standard Oil had to be broken up because it was so powerful. And governments have always been in this problem of what do you do about these giants that are born every time? With each revolution, you have a mm -hmm. set of giants that are very powerful. People start complaining about that excess power and governments try to cope with it and do something. Mm -hmm. Same thing in the golden age, actually, in that whole period of mass production, you had the power of the automobile companies, the power of the oil companies, which was enormous, the power of pharma pharmaceuticals, they were all, they're enormous. They have power over elections. Of course, it's different. Now we have the problem of personal data. We have specific problems, different problems, but each time it's a different problem. Mm -hmm. But every technological revolution creates giants and every technological revolution requires finding the best way of handling the giants in order to save society from the worst consequences of this. Mm -hmm. There are even terrible things, like most people now perhaps never heard of the problems that were created by the meat industry in the very beginning of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. It became a scandal because they were really chopping up in the most horrendous conditions, mm -hmm. no sanitary conditions, no hygiene completely. And that was a big scandal. And then government had to come in and give laws and put order and say which things had to be respected. In fact, a whole institution was created in government to protect health. Mm -hmm. So each time the problem has been different. The giants mm -hmm. have been enormous. Government has looked impotent, but it has always managed to do something to make the conditions livable, you know, to mm -hmm. live with the monopolies or to reduce the power of the monopolies mm -hmm. through all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So 
there are many things that governments can do and they're all different each time because each revolution is different mm -hmm. and the way to deal with the problems created by the giants of each revolution is different too. So you say that it's always the giants are different, the revolution is different and the context is different. So it's different problems that are there, but could there be some pattern to see how governments handle these giants? Is it, I don't know, always by using laws and regulation? Or is it, like you said, it's totally different, there is no pattern? Well, the pattern is that they are not acceptable. Mm -hmm. The pattern is that governments must come in. And because governments have the power to regulate, It's impossible just because they're powerful, the companies, it doesn't mean that they can stop government from regulating. Mm -hmm. So, of course, each time, for instance, when Standard Oil of New Jersey became too big, it was broken up and it was turned into several companies. So that was one way of doing it. Perhaps today that's not the way. Perhaps it makes sense to separate Facebook from Instagram and from WhatsApp, which are three huge competitors that are now swallowed by Facebook, mm -hmm. you know, the other two. So maybe it does make sense to separate them so that they will compete. But maybe there are other things. And I think basically the things to do are better invented by the people who understand the new technologies best. Mm -hmm. The ones that really, really, really think that way, mm -hmm. which is generally younger people. You know, it's very difficult for somebody my age to know exactly what you should do in this particular instance with this particular technology and these particular giants because the way they operate and the logic that they follow is something that is very difficult for me to understand. But mm -hmm. the young people who do understand, they will be able to think up the solutions. Mm -hmm. But you see that it's not already happening. I see what you're saying, but just think about these trials when Mark Zuckerberg had to talk about Cambridge Analytica to the government, and you saw that there was this huge disconnect between Mark Zuckerberg yes. and the people asking the question. So you had, yes. you're right, but it's not happening already. Well, precisely one of the problems is that we have a glass ceiling for the young. Mm -hmm. Normally, if we think of the lifespan today, I am 80 and I am working exactly the same as when I was 50. Mm -hmm. I am not stopping at all. <laughs> There are so many people, you look at the candidates to the US elections, they're all over 70, way over 70, <laughs> the ones that have a chance to win. Mm -hmm. And it's happening everywhere. The young are not at the top posts yet. And mm -hmm. we already have this revolution has already lasted almost 50 years. Mm -hmm. And we still don't get the people who really belong, who think this way, who are digital natives. Mm -hmm. They are not the ones who are designing the policies, designing the strategies of companies and so on, because they have this glass ceiling of all these old people who are thinking the old way, acting the old way, regulating the old way, asking questions the old way. You can't change yourself completely and you know, think like the young. So mm -hmm. what has happened in other revolutions when lifespans were shorter and people retired at 65, people in their 30s were already ready to take over in the 30s and their 40s. And there were people who were born into the new technologies and knew exactly how to handle them. We're not getting that now. Sometimes I wake up 
optimistic and sometimes pessimistic <laughs> because it's been so long. You know, they had so many opportunities to change things and they haven't changed them. And the politicians are all old, so they're not really thinking of changing the world. They're just holding on to power, you know. Mm -hmm. Seeing that you have seen, I think, and heard and read a lot over all the years, are you optimistic about the future and where we are heading? I say that I am the most pessimistic optimist you'll ever meet. <laughs> and the reason why I'm optimistic, fundamentally, is because I really think that every technological revolution can lift another layer of society And perhaps this time, a very large layer, because this time it could be a global lift. Mm -hmm. So I think that each revolution has made things better. Just think of how workers were in the first industrial revolution. It was absolutely horrendous. And now they own a house. And, you know, of course, it's like a ratchet. It goes back and then it goes forward. Each revolution, as I explained at the beginning, goes back. It makes things worse for the poor, makes things better for, the, you know, it has polarization. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and then things get better. So mm -hmm. this is how it's always happened. So the technology has the capability and the pattern, the historical pattern has taken us that way. Mm -hmm. Why am I pessimistic? Well, I mentioned the question of age, how the young are not yet there, therefore they cannot invent the new way of facing this revolution to make it better. And it's obvious that the young have a more social consciousness and more preoccupation about the environment, about life, about fairness and so on. So it would be great if they could get there. Mm -hmm. But we have this problem of the longer lifespans, but we also have a problem of the power of finance given globalization. At no time, well, maybe in the previous globalization, finance did have that power. And in fact, one of the reasons why the UK did not really make a huge leap in the third revolution, whereas the US and Germany did, Mm -hmm. is because it was the financial sector that was governing in the UK because of the empire. You know, they were handling the whole of the empire, so the financial sector was in charge. Today, the whole world is in the hands of the financial sector. And the financial sector has a big problem in relation to production. They don't care if there is no demand because mm -hmm. their job is not to create products or services that have to be bought by somebody. And one of the reasons why society generally ends up making a redistribution of income is because they need demand, because production capital needs demand. Otherwise, it cannot grow. Mm -hmm. Whereas finance can just, it doesn't care what it's moving. It's just moving money and making money grow and they can do bets and things like that. And, you know, of course, there has to be some amount of wealth being created, but finance is sort of footloose. It doesn't care which country. It's not tied to the people of the country where it operates. Whereas production capital both has the workers and the consumers that tie them to what they're doing. And they are interested in that. They're interested in consumption. They're interested in demand. So I do think that unless we can rein in finance, we will not be able to have a golden age. And that is very frightening mm -hmm. because Finance also thrives in military. They make a lot of money in wars. That's a very typical historical thing. So my pessimism has to do then with 
one the finance and the other this crazy idea that has taken hold of everybody which is thinking that markets do everything by themselves that you don't need to do anything you just let them do and of course markets have brought us to the mess we're in now not i'm not just talking about covid 19 i'm talking about the mess that covid 19 has made us realize so the fact that practically every politician in power today believes that markets are better than the state is a very serious problem if you don't have the state helping the economy and making society a win-win game between business and people we will never get to a golden age even though it's perfectly possible that's definitely something that we need um, to think about so on this quite dark but interesting note i will end the conversation it was really wonderful talking to you carlota uh, thank you so much for joining us at the nextworks innovation talks thanks for inviting me this was nextworks innovation talks thank you so much for joining us and follow us on nextworks.com if you're hungry for more innovation news and events